Now, when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the marks of the nails in his hands, and put my finger in the mark of the nails, and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, the disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. None of us want to be defined by our worst moments. And yet that's exactly what we do to other people so often. In fact, we even do it with people from the Bible, like Thomas. We hear this same reading about Thomas every year right after Easter. And it's a weird Sunday. See, right now, pastors are just wrapping up their post-Easter hibernation. All over the country, they're just starting to go outside again where most of them end up seeing their shadow and decide they need to rest for at least a few more days. So this Sunday is typically reserved for supply preachers and associate pastors and seminarians, and every year it's the same passage, the story of Thomas. But not just Thomas, right? If I ask you to tell me Thomas's nickname, you know it, don't you? That's right. Doubting Thomas. And I just want to say, I don't think that's fair. I don't know how the nickname started or when Thomas became Doubting Thomas, but it's a bad nickname. 
And since you didn't get a seminarian this morning, you got me. Now you get to listen to me complain about this for a while. (laughs) Because it's not fair. We don't know a whole lot about Thomas. But this passage that puts the doubt in doubting Thomas is not the only place in the Bible where he plays an important role. Earlier in the Gospel of John, when Jesus hears that his friend Lazarus is dying, he decides to go see Lazarus, to raise him from the dead. And this is right after Jesus had made some of the religious leaders so angry that they literally picked up stones to kill him. So the disciples point out that maybe it's not the best idea to go back to the place where people just played with the idea of stoning you to death. But Jesus says that he's going. Nothing will stop him. And as the disciples are standing there, looking at each other, wondering what to do, that is when Thomas speaks. Wonderful Thomas, beautiful Thomas, who looks at his friends and says, let's go. We'll die with Jesus if we have to. What an amazing thing to say. What an incredible display of faith and courage and leadership. You would think that's the kind of line that earns you a nickname, right? Brave Thomas. Faithful Thomas. Superhero Thomas. Nope. Doubting Thomas. It's not fair. It's not fair because it's not like Thomas was the only one who had doubts about Jesus being raised from the dead. Do you remember Pastor Sarah's sermon last week? The women running back from the tomb, trying to catch their breath, telling the good news that Jesus is alive again? Do you remember the joke she made about how the men just immediately believed the women and accepted their story as true? We know that's not what happened. In the Gospel of Mark, it was Mary Magdalene who came to deliver the good news to the men. And it says, when they heard that Jesus was alive and had been seen by her, they did not believe it. In Luke, a whole group of women go to tell them. And here's what it says. These words seemed to the men like an idle tale. And they did not believe them. And even in this morning's reading from John, it starts with all the male disciples, minus Thomas, of course, locked in a room together, terrified, afraid, This was after the women had delivered the news, and it's clear the men did not believe what they had been told. They were all full of doubt. None of them really believed it until Jesus appeared and they could see for themselves. So why don't we refer to them as doubting Peter and doubting John? Why don't we call him totally normal and just like everyone else, Thomas? Because as far as I can tell, the only thing that's different about Thomas is that he happened to just not be there the first time Jesus stopped by, and we don't even know why. 
Maybe he was out getting food for everyone. Helpful Thomas. Maybe he was checking in on his mom to make sure she was okay, that caring Thomas. Maybe he was looking for the women to ask them more questions, you curious Thomas, you. Instead, even though he was brave and faithful, even though he had the same reaction to the resurrection as everyone else, Thomas is known as Doubting Thomas. And he's often been held up as an example of what not to be. This nickname has defined him to the point where Doubting Thomas has become a phrase that we use to describe and refer to other people. And while I don't know how the nickname came to be, I think it speaks to a larger reality and and truth that is worth talking about. And that is our tendency to define and measure people by their worst moments. All of us have times in our lives when we did things we regret. When we did or said things we knew were wrong. When we acted in ways that were not consistent with our values or our faith. If I ask you to picture your worst moments, most of us won't have to try very hard to remember them. Moments we're embarrassed by, ashamed of. Moments we regret and would handle differently if we were given the chance. We're meant to always be learning, growing, and maturing, and so it's impossible to not have moments like this. And every single one of us would argue that we don't want to be defined by our worst moments. We would argue that the very fact that they're our worst moments means they don't represent who we normally are, who we truly are. That our worst moments need to be viewed with grace and context and understanding. And we all hope that other people will do this for us. We all hope that others will recognize our worst moments for what they are. Mistakes. Outliers, uninformed, thoughtless moments that are often dictated by fear and anxiety rather than grace and love. We all hope that our worst moments will be met with understanding and grace, that they will be seen within the greater context of who we are. In other words, we all hope that people will assume the best about us and our motives. So why is it that we so rarely assume the best about one another? Why is it that so often we allow another person's worst moments to define them fully? Why do we find it so hard to extend the same grace and understanding to other people that we all hope will be shown to us? Hey, Caleb, they're supposed to be listening to me right now, man. Last week, I said something snarky about a person. I still can't remember what it was, 
but it was something that assumed the worst about them and their motives. Don't worry, I'm sure it was none of you. And in response, Pastor Sarah told me to remember the Eighth Commandment. That's the one about not bearing false witness against our neighbors. When Martin Luther wrote about it, he said it means that we are to fear and love God so that we do not tell lies about our neighbors, betray or slander them, or destroy their reputations. Instead, we are to come to their defense, speak well of them, and interpret everything they do in the best possible light. That's powerful. Interpret what others do in the best possible light. Assume the best about people and their motives. Boy, is that a hard thing to do, especially in a culture that seems to find joy in capturing people's worst moments and then sharing them for the whole world to see. And by the way, if you're curious what happened next, I yelled at Pastor Sarah, don't remind me about commandments during Holy Week. (laughs) And then she calmly said, if only I had a dollar for every time you broke a commandment. (laughs) Whatever. Here's what I love about this story and about Thomas. His doubt is just so relatable, isn't it? I mean, who among us hasn't had doubt? Christianity makes some really big claims about life and death, about human nature and the character of God and events that took place a long time ago that we don't get to see for ourselves in a world that's so full of confusion and chaos and pain and violence, it's natural and logical, and normal to have doubts. If we take faith seriously, we will inevitably end up wrestling with doubt. But here's what I love even more about the story. Jesus doesn't allow Thomas to be defined by this moment, this moment of doubt. When Jesus showed up again, this time Thomas was there, and the first words Jesus said were again, peace be with you. And then he invited Thomas to see him, to touch his wounds, to spend time with them. He didn't yell at Thomas for feeling doubt. He wasn't mad or impatient or disappointed. He simply did whatever he could to help Thomas believe, to strengthen his faith, to show him grace and understanding. I don't know where the nickname Doubting Thomas started, but I am sure that it did not come from Jesus because for Jesus, this moment of human doubt and weakness did not define Thomas. And the same is true for us. God does not define us by our worst moments. In Christ, we've been set free from shame and regret, and we've been forgiven even for those moments we want to hide away. Being set free by Jesus means we don't need to be trapped in the past, held hostage by our mistakes or wrongdoing, that we're not defined by our mistakes, our shortcomings, our regrets, or our worst moments. We are defined by God's love for us, a love that is unconditional and always present. And each day, 
each hour, each moment, it brings the opportunity to start fresh and be made new by God's love again. So let's embrace that and stop defining ourselves by our worst moments and let's show that same grace to others. And for crying out loud, let's find Thomas a better nickname. Because thanks to Jesus, the one he has just doesn't fit him anymore. Amen. Amen.